Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com slash style for free shipping and 365-day returns. Brexit is back and making more waves than ever in Westminster, as the Johnson government admitted its latest plans would involve breaking international law. I would say to my honourable friend that yes, this does break international law in a very specific and limited way. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times with me, Sebastian Payne. In this episode, I'll be discussing the almighty row over new legislation that will undermine the UK's withdrawal agreement with the EU, as we heard from Minister Brandon Lewis at the top of the show, and whether negotiations for a trade deal are on the verge of collapse, with political editor George Parker and public policy editor Peter Foster. And later, I'll be looking at the latest coronavirus restrictions, why the government is limiting gatherings to groups of six, and whether the UK is heading for a second lockdown with health editor Sarah Neville and science editor Clive Cookson. George and Peter, welcome back. Hi, Seb. Good to see you, Seb. Well, it's been quite a busy week reporting for all three of us on Brexit, lawyers resigning, the internal market bill. Before we get into all the ructions, I just wanted to ask you how the experience was. Peter, you were at the forefront of this last weekend when you did the first big story on what the government was proposing in that bill. What was the reporting experience like? It was vertiginous, Sebastian. When someone tells you that the British government's planning to essentially renege on elements of a treaty it signed only nine months ago, You know, you want to be very, very sure of your facts. And even though I was very confident on the sourcing of that story, it was an extraordinary thing that was being alleged. And, you know, we've all been doing this for quite a long time. But that one definitely definitely made me feel a little bit queasy. Well, we're all riding on Peter's coattails, really, because it was an extraordinary scoop he broke last Sunday. And from then on, we were sort of trying to keep ahead of the story. And Seb, you and I, on Tuesday morning, had this incredible tip that the head of the government legal department had resigned in protest at the fact the government was planning to break the law. And it was one of those sort of heart-pumping moments Was as a journalist. Um, I, I was tipped off about this while I was having breakfast with my kids, and I had a, something I couldn't get out of immediately. And it was one of those moments where you think, oh, my God, are we going to be able to um, get this story out before anyone else gets hold of it? Thankfully, you and I were able to stand it up fairly quickly and break that story as well. But, you know, it's one of those stories that you know makes it so, so exciting to be a journalist. And all through the week, you know, we've been glued to our phones, WhatsApps, looking out for new tips on what's been an extremely fast-moving story. Yeah, you know, that was the moment when you really did know they were going to do something significant, the government, when, when Jonathan Jones announced he was going to quit. Yes, indeed. I remember when, George, you passed on that tip and we managed to stand it up. My heart started pumping. I was thinking, God, we've got to get this story out as quickly as possible. And a huge tribute to the team at FTHQ that we managed to get the story up in, I think, in about 15 minutes flat after getting it checked and edited. So it really was quite the incredible week. But let's delve into that main political story. The Internal Market Bill was expected to be an innocuous piece of legislation that secured trade between the four nations of the United Kingdom after we have left the EU. 
But last weekend, the FT revealed the internal market bill contained clauses that undermined the withdrawal treaty signed with the EU, particularly with regards to Northern Ireland. Not surprisingly, the bloc, Conservative MPs, peers and lawyers all blew up at the suggestion the UK would seek to break the law. Boris Johnson's defence has been that if no trade deal is stuck with the bloc by the end of the year, the government has no choice but to ensure Northern Ireland continues to trade freely with the rest of Great Britain. We need a a legal safety net to uh, protect our country against extreme or irrational interpretations of the protocol, which could lead to a border down uh, the Irish Sea in a way that I believe, and I think members around the House believe, would be prejudicial to the interests of the Good Friday Agreement and prejudicial to the interests of peace in our country. So George, just start off by setting out the context to this and where we're at in the Brexit process and why this internal market bill came at such a sensitive time. Well, it came out at the start of the eighth week of formal negotiations on a new UK-EU free trade agreement. And those talks were already in a sticky enough place as it was. As you know, they've been bogged down for weeks on well-known issues of state aid and fisheries, amongst others. But then for this to come out of the blue sky from a European point of view, it was extremely provocative. Boris Johnson said this was all about upholding the Good Friday Agreement in Northern Ireland. Well, the Irish government, who was obviously a co-signatory of that agreement, wasn't made aware of what Boris Johnson had in mind, let alone the rest of the European Union. So the timing of this was extremely inflammatory. Initially, it wasn't sort of a nuclear explosion immediately after Peter broke the story. And there was some suggestion that David Frost, the UK chief negotiator, thought this was something that they could get through without a massive blow up. And in fact, there was quite an amicable phone call between uh, Boris Johnson and Emmanuel Macron, the French president, that evening. But I think it was only when the penny dropped in Europe, when Brandon Lewis, Northern Ireland Secretary, said the government was intending to break the law, that the full enormity of this that Peter grasped right from the beginning of the week became apparent to everyone. So, Peter, can you just set out how this legislation does undermine the withdrawal treaty once we saw the contents of the bill on Wednesday? Yeah, it does it in the most sweeping and comprehensive way. What it does essentially is excise or remove the UK's obligations under the withdrawal agreement. Firstly, as regards state aid, Article 10 of the protocol, which has what they call reach back into the UK. So the Article 10 says that Northern Ireland will follow EU state aid rules for industrial goods policy. But more importantly, any decision that might be taken in GB that could potentially impact the Northern Ireland markets is also captured by that clause. And the UK Internal Market Bill says, notwithstanding the fact that we agreed to that when we passed the Withdrawal Agreement into law, ministers will have the right to override it. And the second part of that is that we also agreed that Northern Ireland would follow the union's EU's customs code. And that means sending exit summary declarations from goods going from Northern Ireland into Great Britain. And again, the bill says, notwithstanding the fact that we agreed to that, ministers will have the right simply to ignore it. And of course, in the clip you played of Boris, Boris was actually talking about goods going from GB into Northern Ireland. And the other part of the story which we reported was that the government intends to put in a similar notwithstanding clause in the finance bill in the autumn that will have the same impact on the question of which goods going from Great Britain into Northern Ireland would face tariffs, again with the effect of simply excising our obligations under the treaty that we agreed, which came into UK law via the withdrawal legislation, the EU withdrawal legislation. 
And George, when this was first announced, the government said this is all just tidying up and limited changes here. But as Peter said, when we saw that legislation, that line has really just fallen apart from Downing Street. This really is quite a substantial change. And you can see why the EU has acted so adversely to it. Well, absolutely, because these issues were the subject of intense negotiations in something called the Joint Committee, which was set up to sort of hammer out the details of the Northern Ireland situation. So we've had Michael Gove and his European counterparts talking about this for several months. And actually, those talks seem to be proceeding in a reasonably cordial way, and they were getting to grips with some of the issues raised by the protocol. What this bill basically says, we hope there can be an agreement in the Joint Committee, but if there isn't, we're going to do it anyway. And so it's a vastly provocative thing. And it's led some people to speculate, of course, that this was all a plan by David Frost and other advisors to Boris Johnson, including Dominic Cummings, of course, the chief advisor, to basically try and collapse the talks and push the prime minister inexorably down the route of a no-deal exit. Now, this legislation has been criticised in Westminster, but much further afield too. Michael Martin, the Irish Taoiseach, has raised his objections on RT News this week. I pointed out very strongly to him that this was very unsettling for Northern Ireland. But more fundamentally, I made a point to him that we all have obligations as political leaders to protect our peoples from the worst effect of a no-deal and that this intervention was very, very serious and has raised a fundamental issue of trust. And it's this issue of trust, Peter, that seems to have really upset the EU on this because that withdrawal agreement, they've always said, is the absolute basis for any future relationship. It has to be implemented in law and in good faith. And based on what they've seen this week, there's an argument to say the UK isn't interested in doing it in good faith. You know, we've heard from Downing Street, they've said that, oh, well, withdrawal agreement was negotiated at pace was the line and therefore we had to go back and fix it. Boris Johnson said this legislation was to create a safety net but the Northern Ireland Protocol which he agreed in order to get an exit agreement is the safety net right it's an all-weather safety net that maintains the need not to have a border in Ireland and keeps Northern Ireland and Ireland the all-Ireland economy whole and entire and it was an all-weather front stop and it was absolutely anticipated that the storm would be a no deal. That's why it's there. But what this legislation says is that if we end up in a no deal, we are simply going to rewrite the protocol. And so whilst Michael Gove and Boris Johnson say they're committed to the Good Friday Agreement and they're committed to implementing the protocol, they're committed to the joint committee, they are, to use a phrase that was used by an EU official this week, sitting in the negotiating room with the revolver on the table. You know, this legislation basically says, give us what we want. And if we don't, get what we want, we'll take it by legislative force. You know, the EU thinks it cannot be expected to negotiate on those terms, which is why it said to the government, you need to remove this. It's not that actually these issues are not necessarily fixable, but it's an extraordinary way to go about it, I think. The internal market bill also had big repercussions in Westminster too, as we saw from the resignation of Jonathan Jones, who's the government's Chief Lawyer, we reported in the FT this week, George, that um, the government's most senior solicitor was very unhappy about the direction of the internal market bill. But it's also created big issues across Whitehall with many other civil servants sharing Sir Jonathan's concerns and worried if they're going to be asked to do things that break the civil service code or break the ministerial code. Well, it's a good question. There was a big legal debate inside the government about this, and eventually Jonathan Jones was overruled by Suella Braverman, the Attorney General, who many people regard as being a sort of staunch Brexiteer who maybe is not the most impartial giver of legal advice to the government. 
But it was interesting that, you know, Jonathan Jones quit because he felt that he couldn't possibly endorse a position which involved the government breaching international law. For him, that was a fairly clear-cut case. But it was interesting that Simon Case, the um, newly appointed head of the civil service, who only just started work this week, did sign this off and said that civil servants would be able to carry on working on this legislation without breaking any of the rules. So it's an interesting early test for the civil service and indeed for Simon Case. And finally, of course, this is the question about where this leaves the Brexit process, Peter, because some people in government think this is all just a ruse to act tough, look tough. And eventually, Boris Johnson still does want a Brexit deal. He wants to get this thing together, maybe on terms that don't quite appear right now. But in a couple of weeks time, when we get to that final stage in October, that they will put aside this disagreement and still get there. But has there been so much bad faith created now? Do you think that a deal is impossible? I don't think a deal is impossible. I can see ways in which you can reach a deal. My problem is that I'm not sure that the foreseeable deals that you can reach are acceptable to this government. Because let's say for sake of argument, the British government takes these clauses back. It has said effectively to its backbenchers, we agree with you that the Northern Ireland Protocol is inconsistent with the clean break Brexit that we want. Let's say for sake of argument, Boris Johnson convinced the EU to give them a bare-bones trade deal, zero quota, zero tariff, with you know, a unilateral state aid regime, unless you, in inverted commas, fix the protocol and rewrite Article 10 to stop the reach back on state aid into the UK, it's clear that we won't be free as Brexiteers would see it. So this is my problem, is I don't see a deal that can be done that would satisfy Boris Johnson on his own terms. Unless, of course, Peter, it could be fixed in the Joint Committee in some way that fudges the whole question we've just been discussing earlier. I suppose that's the only way out. But then you're asking the EU to rewrite the protocol, the all-weather backstop. Now, maybe, but you know, in the context of the current climate, like I said, I'm not saying it's not fixable. I just wonder whether actually the EU also wonders whether the actions of the government this week are the actions of a government that actually wants to fix it. I know that's a moot point. Boris wants a deal, doesn't want a deal. I've always believed there will be a deal. But for the first time, I'm really starting to wonder whether there's a way out. It's true. If you're trying to make sense of what happened this week, you look and scratch your head. I mean, I've, I've always been of the view that Boris Johnson and the EU, it's in their mutual interest to get a deal. But at the end of this week, you're scratching your head thinking, if that is the case, what on earth were they thinking about this week? Because They've ended up sort of walking onto a ledge. They've managed to assemble a coalition of Nancy Pelosi, Michael Howard, Lord Lamont, Theresa May, the European Commission, the Irish T-shirt, all condemning them. And they've got to walk back from that ledge or, of possibility, of course, they just stay on the ledge or walk off it and we end up with no deal. I still think at the end of the day, Boris Johnson does want a deal, not just for economic reasons, but there are other factors weighing very heavily on senior members of the government, the competence of the government. And, of course, the issue which is weighing very heavily, particularly on Michael Gove's mind, is the issue of Scottish independence. So there are a lot of factors weighing down on Boris Johnson, even if there are people in his inner circle, including Dominic Cummings, who basically say, sod the lot of them, let's just go on and have a clean break and do what we want. Well, finally, Peter, because I've generally agreed with George that Boris Johnson wants to have seen to have achieved a deal. But the place we've ended up in at the end of the week can't be where Downing Street wanted to be, because on Thursday, the EU made that ultimatum. They said... If you don't withdraw these controversial clauses from the internal market bill, then that's it. And Downing Street cannot simply do that. I can't think of any British prime minister, David Cameron, Theresa May, or even Tony Blair in modern history, who would have changed domestic legislation because the EU demanded they do that. So we're in a position now where 
if they stick to their ultimatum, then the talks will almost certainly collapse. And as you've said, there's not a huge amount of goodwill left to bring them back together in October. No, indeed. And that's why a lot of people are deducing from the fact that actually the British government has decided that, not that it doesn't want a deal, that a deal is actually not there to be done. By the same token, just as the British government can't be seen to withdraw registration because Brussels demands it, that would be toxic at the best of times, close to suicidal at this moment. By the same token, can you see the EU sitting down to negotiate under duress? You know, it's an extraordinary situation. The British government, you know, they talk about negotiating in good faith. How can you negotiate in good faith when you're essentially threatening to predetermine the outcome of the negotiation if you don't get what you want unilaterally in your own law? I've lost for words almost. Is that a negotiating tactic or is that just an ultimatum? I just struggle to see where the way out is at the moment. George and Peter, thank you. Coronavirus is rapidly spreading through the UK again. The number of positive test cases in Britain has surged to over 2,000 a day this week, leading the Johnson government to introduce its first nationwide measure since May. Gatherings have been cut from 30 to 6 people with hefty new fines for those who break the rules. The uptick has worried ministers who have been focused until now on the economic recovery, but it's also worried the medical experts who think Britons have become too relaxed and aren't focused enough on official guidance. England's Chief Medical Officer Chris Whitty warned this week. If people hear a distorted version of what's been said that says this is all fine now, it's gone away, and start behaving in ways that they normally would have before this virus happened, yes, we will get an uptick, for sure. So it is absolutely critical people stick to the guidance that's been given. It's a changed guidance, but there are still very significant restrictions socially, and there are very significant restrictions on business of different sorts. Sarah Neville, let's begin with the numbers. Is the UK experiencing what we've seen in other countries and what some are describing as a second wave of coronavirus? Well, we certainly are seeing a very striking rise in cases. I was looking just yesterday at the latest figures from the NHS Test and Trace Service, which showed a 43% increase in positive cases week on week. And I don't think we would yet categorise it as a second wave as much as anything, because intriguingly, it's not yet showing up in a big rise in cases in hospital. Now, we are seeing a big rise in hospitalisations in some of our European neighbours in in France and Spain. So it's plausible, and this, of course, is what is hugely worrying ministers, that there's a lag, but in another two or three weeks, we will see that rise in hospitalisations. And Clive Cookson, based on what we know and have learned about the coronavirus this year, was this always expected? Because we've heard from people like Matt Hancock, the health secretary this week, that we could end up, as I think he described it, a very bad place later this year if people don't start observing the social restrictions more rigorously. But was some further rise always going to happen? It was certainly feared. Whether it was expected depends on the nature of the personality, even experts. Some have an optimistic, sunny personality and were thinking somehow that it would disappear in the summer and magically not reappear. But no, most serious experts took the pessimistic view that there would be some rise in the autumn. 
I think it's surprising perhaps that it's come so soon because during the autumn and of course the winter, people are indoors much more where you're far more likely to pass on the virus than in the great outdoors. This virus is not completely seasonal because we've seen it raging through tropical areas, but there's certainly a seasonality about it. And that's what people were fearing together, of course, with less social distancing. And of course, Sarah, this may only be the beginning of further nationwide measures, which we know something Boris Johnson really doesn't want to have to do, but he may have no choice. Absolutely. And of course, we got the first insight into that this week with the new restrictions that are coming in on Monday that, with some exemptions, limit the number of people who can gather together to six. And Chris Whitty, who we heard from earlier, I mean, he very much did foreshadow this earlier in the summer when he said that when children went back to school, we might have to start imposing additional restrictions to compensate for the risks of contagion that arise from the children being back in the classroom. And Clive, there is also this question about how the government can enforce these restrictions that up until now there have been fines and the government has been trying to nudge people into this with various messages, stay at home to save the NHS, hands, face, space, that sort of thing. But we heard from Boris Johnson that in fact the fines are going to increase up to £100 and they're going to introduce coronavirus street marshals. And the idea of having people spying on your neighbours, it's not a particularly British thing, but it does suggest that they are concerned people aren't really following their guidelines. A lot of people think that it's not the British way to do this through compulsion, restrictions, marshals, that somehow it can be done through a feeling of altruism and community spirit. And to some extent, that is, of course, true. A lot of people I know have voluntarily socially distanced. I think if People hadn't taken precautions themselves during the summer. We wouldn't have gone as low as we did in cases before the current upsurge. But that's clearly not enough. Every country in the world, with the possible exception of Sweden, that has tried to control this virus has had a level of compulsion. But obviously, you don't want it to be so obtrusive or so obnoxious that it puts people off and in a contrarian spirit, they decide to defy the rules. And we've seen, Sarah, from some Conservative MPs this week, this concern that they've been saying, well, this goes a bit too far, having people spying on their neighbours. And also it conflicts with this messaging we've seen from the government about getting the economy moving again. Everything we've heard over the past couple of weeks has been, you know, going to restaurants to eat out, to help out, as per Rishi Sunak's scheme. It's been about getting back to the office. Whereas now the idea that having to roll back some of those freedoms that have been brought in, it will shake people's confidence and does create this conflicting message that will risk confusing people. I think we've seen the most extraordinary whipsawing of messaging. And I think one of the things I felt strongly about Boris Johnson's announcement on this new restriction was that underlying it was a real concern in government that the clarity of messaging has been completely lost. I mean, I know I personally would really struggle to tell you in a compressed way what I am allowed to do right now, what I'm not allowed to do. I think the real early triumph of public health messaging 
stay at home, protect the NHS, save lives, that message that we had all through the really tight weeks of the lockdown, and that did prove extraordinarily effective. And since then, an enormous amount of that clarity has been lost. Boris Johnson took a sort of straw poll of his own MPs at a recent meeting of the Backbench 1922 committee, where he actually asked, you know, sort of hands up if you understand what the messaging is right now, what you are allowed to do. That's exactly right. Boris Johnson asked two groups of MPs how many people are allowed to socialise. And when half the room couldn't answer, he said, oh, Christ, we do need to fix our communication strategy. And that's why I think they've gone back to that blunt messaging, even if it's not quite as clear as Clive was saying there. And finally, let's just look at two areas that are very crucial to try and getting out of this situation. The first one is a coronavirus vaccine. And Clive, there appeared to be a little bit of a setback on the crucial AstraZeneca Oxford vaccine that a lot of people have put their hopes on. Can you tell us what that is and whether it does suggest that a vaccine may not be as forthcoming as some had hoped? It was a setback because one of the 10,000 or more participants in the clinical trial of the Oxford AstraZeneca vaccine showed quite a serious adverse reaction and inflammation of her spinal cord. Now, it turns out that in all vaccine trials, there are these adverse events, which may have nothing to do with the vaccine itself. It may be coincidence, but they all have to be investigated. The difference, of course, is that this trial is under a microscope and being conducted so much more quickly than anything else in the history of vaccines. If the checks turn out to show that there isn't a serious issue this time, it'll resume. All vaccine trials have this. It may be serious, but my hunch and hope, of course, is that it won't really be a setback. And Pascal Sorio, the chief executive of AstraZeneca, said he still thought the vaccine might be available already for licensing by the end of the year. And finally, Sarah, let's look on the other element, which is the UK's track and trace system. This is to try and stop coronavirus outbreaks. But there's been a lot of concerns this week that the system is not up to scratch. And that's something Keir Starmer, the leader of the Labour Party, made up Prime Minister's questions this week. Mr Speaker, why can't we just hear from the Prime Minister an honest answer? As ever, he pretends the problem isn't there. The infection rate is rising. This is the very point... We need a functioning testing regime. But far from the world-beating system we were promised, the government can't even get the basics right. Sarah, do you think Sir Keir was right there? I think what is alarming about the test and trace system is that the failure to contact the necessary number of contacts of people who have themselves tested positive, that number has remained stubbornly below 80% ever since the test and trace system started. And that 80% figure is crucial. It's what SAGE, the government's scientific advisory committee, has said is necessary to control the spread of the virus. But I noticed this week, overall, I think only 69% of contacts are being reached. So What is striking is the persistence of these problems and that somehow the test and trace programme leaders have not been able to get on top of it. And one of the senior people on the programme actually 
did the rather rare thing in public life of, of issuing what she actually described as a heartfelt apology. And that was largely about the availability of tests, because there's been an enormous amount of anecdotal evidence that people attempting to get a test are being sent very long distances from their home. So they badly need more testing capacity, and they've acknowledged that. And that lack of lab capacity is turning into a really serious pinch point for the programme. And last word to you, Clive, given all this, where we are with the vaccine and with test, track and trace and with the spread of coronavirus, do you think a second nationwide lockdown, the sort of which we saw earlier in the year, is going to happen or is avoidable in the UK? I think it's avoidable. I think the government will be absolutely determined to avoid a blanket lockdown and will be absolutely determined to keep schools open, at least to some extent. It won't be a lockdown like the one at the end of March and in April. I think there'll be a lot of localization of the lockdowns, as we've already seen, but that will be increased. All the problems that Sarah's been talking about with testing and tracing will presumably be at least partially sorted out during the autumn, which will make it easier to target local interventions. So I think almost however bad it gets, we won't have a nationwide lockdown because one feature of the disease now is that the people who are getting it are younger and therefore much less likely because the disease is so age-related much less likely to overwhelm the hospitals. And one criterion will be whether the hospitals are overwhelmed. And I think the infection rate will have to exceed the worst predictions of the modelers for that to happen. Sarah and Clive, thanks for joining. And that's it for this week's episode of Paint Politics. If you enjoyed the podcast, then why not subscribe? You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Play, and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. And for those who have become regular listeners of our interview specials, our most recent midweek episode is with Bridget Philipson. I spoke to Labour's Shadow Chief Secretary to the Treasury about how the party can become fiscally credible again and rebuild itself in the north of England. You can find the episode on the usual feed. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedda and Josh Dillamere. The sound engineer is Breen Turner and the editor, Liam Nolan. Until next time, thanks for listening. Hey, it's Paige DeSorbo from Giggly Squad. High quality fashion without the price tag. Say hello to Quince. I'm snagging high-end essentials like cozy cashmere sweaters, sleek leather jackets, fine jewelry, and so much more. With Quince being 50 to 80% less than similar brands. And they partner with factories that prioritize safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. I love that. Luxury quality within reach. Go to quince.com slash style to get free shipping and 365 day returns on your next order. Quince.com slash style. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. 
Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com.